0: Welcome to Celebrate Poe. My name is George Bartley, and this is Episode 92, Santa Claus Establishes New York. And uh, that was the opening to the holiday song, O Come Little Children. Now, before I go into the second part of Old Christmas, I want to say a little bit more about the life and accomplishments of Washington Irving. Now perhaps Washington Irving's most famous story is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Oh, his uh, Rip Van Winkle is certainly up there, but The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is usually considered his most popular work. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is a creepy tale about an awkward schoolteacher who vanishes mysteriously in the forest. So, most readers might know Washington Irving more as an author to read during Halloween season, but I think that uh, he has far more, he's had far more of an influence on the Christmas season. You know, you could almost say that Washington Irving created Christmas in America as we know it. Oh, Dickens had a great deal of influence on Christmas as well, but many of Dickens' attitudes were influenced by Washington Irving. In original Knickerbocker, The Life of Washington Irving, biographer Andrew Bernstein writes about Irving, "'He did not invent the holiday,' But he did all he could to make minor customs into major customs, to make them enriching signs of family and social togetherness. By the way, Irving popularized the term Knickerbocker as a word for a person from New York City. So you can say that Washington Irving furnished the name for the New York Knicks. One of uh, Irving's biggest contributions to Christmas in America was his promotion of Saint Nicholas as a beloved character. He really laid the groundwork for the figure that uh, we'd eventually embrace as Santa Claus. I touched on this yesterday but wanted to say a bit more about the origin of Santa Claus in America. I believe I mentioned in the last podcast episode that Irving had written A History of New York, a book that became a a real publishing sensation. Now, stay with me on this one. The book was said to be a parody of a book by Samuel L. Mitchell called The Picture of New York or The Traveler's Guide Through the Commercial Metropolis of the United States. Even the title sounds a little bit pretentious. Mitchell was a Columbia medical professor and United States senator, and he came across as one of those pompous know-it-alls, the kind of person who really doesn't know that much, but acts as though uh, he or she knows everything about everything. And uh, when he didn't know something, he would just make up fictional accounts about Manhattan, in this case, trying to pass off some really tall tales as fact. Senator Mitchell like some of our some of our know it all senators today was setting himself up to be ridiculed now enter Washington Irving Washington Irving came up with a story about the shipwreck of a dutch scouting party on manhattan during the shipwreck one of its members receives a vision in which good St. Nicholas came riding over the tops of the trees in that self same wagon wherein he brings his yearly presents to children. Irving wrote that, uh, t- uh, saying that uh, St. Nicholas told the Dutch to settle on the island. So St. Nick, in a sense, became the founding father of the most famous city in America but Irving was actually doing something with this St. Nicholas story to do some good. In 1835, he helped found the St. Nicholas Society of the City of New York, serving as its secretary until 1841. Beyond his interest in Nicholas, Irving advanced Christmas as the festive pageant of presents and feasting that now dominates the American winter calendar. And uh, while the first two sections of Old Christmas in this episode, known uh, uh, and this section is known as the Stagecoach, uh, it doesn't deal directly with the uh, celebratory nature of Christmas in the very same way as the last three episodes, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and Christmas Dinner. But despite all this, the first two episodes are a necessary build-up to the festivities. And now for the second part, the stagecoach. And note how Washington Irving is a master at painting pictures with words to form images in your mind. In the preceding paper, I have made some general observations on the Christmas festivities of England and am tempted to illustrate them by some anecdotes of a Christmas past in the country. In the course of a December tour in Yorkshire, I rode for a long distance in one of the public coaches on the day preceding Christmas. The coach was crowded both inside and out with passengers who, by their talk, seemed principally bound to the mansions of relations or friends to eat the Christmas dinner. It was loaded also with hampers of game and baskets and boxes of delicacies and hares hung dangling their long ears about the coachman's box, presents from distant friends for the impending feast. I had three fine, rosy-cheeked schoolboys for my fellow passengers inside, full of the, the buxom health and manly spirit which I have, which I have observed in the children of this country. They were returning home for the holidays in high glee and promising themselves a world of enjoyment. It was delightful to hear the gigantic plans of pleasure of the little rogues. They were full of anticipations of the meeting with the family and household, down to the very cat and dog, and of the joy they were to give their little sisters by the presents with which their pockets were crammed. But the meeting to which they seemed to look forward with the greatest impatience was with Bantam, which I found to be a pony. And according to their talk, possessed of more virtues than any steed since the days of Bucifus. How he could trot, how he could run, and then such leaps as he would take. There was not a hedge in the whole country that he could not clear. The coachman enjoys great consequence and consideration along the road. Has frequent conferences with the village housewives, who look upon him as a man of great trust and dependence. When off the box, his hands are thrust in the pockets of his great coat, and he rolls about the inn yard with an air of the most absolute lordliness. He is generally surrounded by an admiring throng of stable boys and those nameless hangers-on that infest inns and taverns and run errands and do all kinds of odd jobs for the privilege of battering on the drippings of the kitchen and the leakage of the taproom. These all look up to him, treasure up his phrases, echo his opinions about horses and other topics of jockey lore and above all, endeavor to imitate his air and carriage. Every rag muffin that has a coat to his back thrusts his hands in the pockets, rolls in his gait, and talks slang. Perhaps it might be owing to the pleasing serenity that reigned in my own man mind that I fancied I saw cheerfulness in every countenance throughout the journey. A stagecoach, however, carries animation always with it and puts the world in motion as it whirls along. The horn, sounded at the entrance of a village, produces a general bustle. Some hasten forth to meet friends, some with bundles and band boxes to secure places and in the hurry of the moment can hardly take leave of the group that accompanies them. In the meantime, the coachman has a world of small commissions to execute. As the coach rattles through the village, everyone runs to the window and you have glances on every side of fresh country faces and blooming, giggling girls. At the corners are assembled village idlers and wise men who take their stations there for the important purpose of seeing company pass. The smith, with the horse's heel in his lap, pauses as the vehicle whirls by, and the sooty specter in brown paper cap, laboring at the bellows, leans on the handle for a moment and permits the asthmatic engine to heave a long, drawn sigh while he glares through the murky smoke and gleams of the smithy. Perhaps the impending holiday might have uh, given more than usual animation to the country, for it seemed to me as if everybody was in good looks and good spirits. Game, poultry, and other luxuries of the table were in brisk circulation in the villages. The grocers, butchers, and their fruiter shops were thronged with customers. The housewives were stirring briskly about, putting their dwellings in order, and the glossy branches of holly with their bright red berries began to appear at the windows. The scene brought to mind an old writer's account of Christmas preparations. Now capons and hens, besides turkeys, geese, and ducks, with beef and mutton, all must die, for in twelve days a multitude of people will not be fed with a little... Now plums and spice, sugar and honey, square it among pies and broth. Now or never must music be in tune, for the youth must dance and sing, while the aged sit by the fire. I was roused from my fit of luxurious meditation by a shout from my little traveling companions. They had been looking out of the coach windows for the last few miles— "'recognizing every tree and cottage as they approached home. "'And now there was a general burst of joy. "'There's John, and and there's old Carlo, and and there's Bantam!' "'cried the happy little rogues, clapping their hands. "'At the end of a lane there was an old, sober-looking servant waiting for them. "'He was accompanied by a pointer and by the redoubtable Bantam.' "'a little old rat of a pony "'with a shaggy mane and long, rusty tail, "'who stood dozing quietly by the roadside, "'little dreaming of the bustling times that awaited him. "'I was pleased to see the fondness "'with which the little fellows leaped "'about the steady old footman "'and hugged the pointer "'who wriggled his whole body for joy.' But Bantam was the great object of interest. All wanted to to uh, mount at, at once, and it was with some difficulty that John arranged that they should ride by turns, and the eldest should ride first. off they set at last, one on the pony with the dog bounding and barking before him and the others holding John's hands, both talking at once and overpowering him by questions about home and with school anecdotes. I looked after them with a feeling in which I do not know whether pleasure or melancholy predominated, for I was reminded of those days when, like them, I had neither known care nor sorrow. We stopped a few moments afterward to water the horses, and on resuming our route, A turn of the road brought us in sight of a neat country seat. I could just distinguish the forms of a lady and two young girls in the portico, and I saw my little comrades, with Bantam, Carlo, and old John trooping along the carriage road. I leaned out of the coach window in hopes of witnessing the happy meeting, but a grove of trees shut it from my sight. In the evening we reached a village where I had determined to pass the night. As we drove into the great gateway of the inn, I saw on one side the light of a rousing kitchen fire beaming through a window. I entered and and, uh, admired for the hundredth time that picture of convenience, neatness, and broad, honest enjoyment. The kitchen of an English inn. It was of spacious dimensions, hung round with copper and tin vessels, highly polished and decorated here and there with the Christmas green. Hams, tongues, and flitches of bacon were suspended from the ceiling, and a clock ticked in one corner. A well-scoured deal table extended along one side of the kitchen, with a cold round of beef upon it, over which two foaming tankards of ale seemed mounting guard. Trim housemaids were hurrying backwards and forwards under the directions of a fresh, bustling landlady, but still seizing an occasional moment to exchange a flippant word and have a rallying laugh with the group round the fire. The scene completely realized the humble idea of the comforts of midwinter. I had not been long at the inn when a carriage drove up to the door. A young gentleman stepped out, and by the light of the lamps I caught a glimpse of a countenance which I thought I knew. I moved forward to get a nearer view when his eye caught mine. I was not mistaken. It was Frank Bracebridge." a sprightly, good-humored young fellow with whom I had once traveled on the continents. Our meeting was extremely cordial, for the countenance of an old fellow traveler always brings up the recollection of a thousand pleasant scenes, odd adventures, and excellent jokes. To discuss all these in a transient interview at an inn was impossible, and finding that I was not pressed for time, and was merely making a tour of observation, he insisted that I should give him a day or two at his father's country seat. He was going there to pass the holidays, and it lay at a few miles' distance. It is better than eating a solitary Christmas dinner at an inn, said he, and I can assure you of a of a hearty welcome in something of the old-fashioned style. His reasoning was cogent, and I must confess, the preparation I had seen for universal festivity and social agreement had made me feel a little impatient of my loneliness. I closed, therefore, "'at once with his invitation. "'The carriage drove up to the door, "'and in a few moments I was on my way "'to the family mansion of the Brace Bridges.'" Now, you know that uh, the weather, at least here in Indianapolis, uh, well, it's a lot colder, <laughs> even getting colder, and it has bone-chilling winds. I therefore have more time to spend inside. I mean, I really don't want to go outside. And I'm working a lot more on Celebrate Poe. On the day of Christmas Eve, the, uh, this, uh, the, uh, the podcast will deal with, you guessed it, Christmas Eve. Then Celebrate Poe will release Irving's Christmas Day on Christmas Day. And since I like to keep episodes about 35 minutes or less, I'll release the final section of Old Christmas, The Christmas Dinner, a few minutes later by itself on Christmas Day. Then on the day after Christmas, the podcast episode is The Festival by H.P. Lovecraft. It would hardly be accurate to call the festival a Christmas story in the traditional sense. It is far too dark. But, as you probably know, Lovecraft was greatly influenced by Poe, and the festival is a really cool story. Now, when I started this podcast, I did a list of what to cover in Poe's life using a basic chronological order. With the mass of information available about Poe out there, if you don't have a written and thought-out plan, then you basically wander around aimlessly and end up nowhere. Just the outline was over 50 pages and I quickly found that as I did research, I would run into subjects that were interesting and fascinating and I just couldn't leave them out. For example, in one chronological listing, I saw the eruption of Tambora as an event that took place during Poe's life. Well, I had never heard of Mount Tambora in my life and was amazed at the massive effect that the eruption had on the world. The explosion took place in Indonesia and actually affected life in England and Virginia, halfway around the world. And you can't talk about Mount Tambora without talking about how the volcano's effects led to a competition between a group of romantic writers. This contest led to Frankenstein as well as the first modern-day vampire story. And that led to the events and dynamics surrounding the series of Frankenstein movies, as well as Dracula. And I'll be talking about the genesis of all that uh, next week. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, to quote the great comedian Stephen Colbert, Meanwhile, I will start on Monday, December the 27th, with a 30-minute recap series covering roughly 20 episodes of Celebrate Poe Every Day. Uh, I'll talk about the format of this podcast, this is from the first episode, a bit about its background, some of the uh, elements of Poe's early life, and the introduction, and why I feel qualified to do this podcast. There will also be episodes every day during that week after Christmas on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, each dealing with summaries of roughly 20 podcasts. At that rate, it should take five episodes in the series, or five days, until Celebrate Poe reaches 100 episodes, which should happen before the end of 2001. I know this sounds kind of wordy, but I think it all will become a lot clearer as, as time goes by. Now, one last thing. Instead of aiming for 12 o'clock midnight as a release time for episodes, which, is how, which I had been doing in the past, I'm releasing the rest of the episodes this month, starting at 8 o'clock in the morning. Not that I'm going to be up at 8 o'clock. That's just asking too much for a, for a, a night person. But I'm doing all these episodes in advance. Then I can upload a podcast episode and set a time for that episode to be released. For example, the episode on Christmas Eve should be available on the morning of Christmas Eve. Hopefully each podcast should be up right away, but I believe some hosts may take as long as 24 hours. Well, sources for this episode include The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon, Gent by Washington Irving, Complete Fictional Works of Washington Irving by Washington Irving, Washington Irving, The Definitive Biography of America's First Best-Selling Author by Brian J. Jones, The Literary Adventures of Washington Irving by Cheryl Harness, Original Knickerbocker, The Life of Washington Irving by Andrew Bernstein, Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography by Arthur Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight Thomas and David K. Jackson, and The Reason for the Darkness of the Night by John Tresh. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.